0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiative podcast, we are broadcasting from the uh, New Zealand Initiative members retreat down in beautiful Queenstown. I'm joined here today with uh, famous broadcaster, Sean Plunkett, Sean Good g'day.
1: g'day, lovely to be here thanks to the Initiative for the invite and I'll tell you what, um, it is a lovely spot but it's also really interesting to see uh, so much brain power <laughs> in one bit. room. <laughs> And and sort of influence, but I'm really struck by, in some ways, how disheartened these people are mm. about where the country is at, where a civic discourse is at, where policy debate is at, and it's not tribal national labour, it just seems to be a frustration and a depression that we're not really in a great space right now.
0: And also the policy making process, right, there's a lot yeah. of gripes around that too. Yeah. Okay. Um what else have you observed at the uh, the members retreat
1: here? I mean um
0: that's to talk to a few people Well, few and things. that we
1: are a great little country where it's easy to network and if we set our minds to something collectively or as communities in New Zealand we can turn our boat round really quickly. We're a great little social experiment. So I always actually come away from things like this feeling really optimistic about New Zealand. Mm. Because, and as I joked, I think in my session this morning, you should say you could say this is a secret enclave of super white post colonial privilege. <laughs> it's not. There is a lot of power in the room, and the people seem to be here to be progressive and positive for New Zealand for all the right reasons. For right? all the right reasons, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I do know others in the media who would look at this group and you would be uh, branded, you know, right wing think tank and everything. But those silly polarized. Approaches they might work um, and be relevant in the United States, but the fact is there's a whole lot more that binds New Zealanders from across all political persuasions together yeah. than drives them apart. You know, I think I think it's actually uh, one
0: of my colleagues uh, referred to it the other week. Uh, she
1: said New Zealanders'
0: superpower is being able to relate to a whole depth and breadth of yeah. people in society, yeah,
1: and, and reach people relatively quickly. And if we can sort of turn the bus around on Polarized culture, uh, you know, cancel culture, media. We keep that superpower, you know. Yeah, and yeah. we can enhance it. Yeah,
0: that's dead right. That brings me uh, obviously to the platform. So yeah.
1: your your new
0: media venture. So yeah. you're, you're decked out in all the platform gear, yeah, right yeah, there. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I've shameless merchandising. <laughs> um, so we, are well, right now we're um, we're about a month away from launching probably the jewel and the crown or the biggest single part of it, which is the Country's first um, digital only talkback radio station called The Platform. Yep. um, The Platform Talk. Um, And I came down here. This is a nice break, but the phone's been going. So we're launching an app in a couple of weeks that people can download and take our holding pattern. But that will deliver our opinion uh, columns, our podcasts, which are are growing, and we're reaching out and forming alliances with other uh, content providers. But the talk radio, which will run from 6 in the morning till 6 at night, um, yep. will be talked back the way it should be. Yep. And it will be about actually not listening to the power brokers and the good and the great, but listening to New Zealanders and finding out what they think about what's happening in their country. Right. Giving a voice to people who have been cancelled, excluded, or told that they're not relevant by mainstream media. That's really the nub, if you like, of of what the platform, um, you know, th- th- when I sat down and said, "What do we need?" I said, "I didn't used to like talkback radio. I love it. I think it's one of the most democratic, informative, and interesting formats of media there is." It's and really it filtered, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's real and live. And we're actually debating at the moment: do we have a delay button? And yep, I saying, right. "No, nah, let's just make it really live." Far out. And just you know that that's what it is. Yeah, um, yeah. So. We've got a studio down here I'm going to go and see this afternoon at Gibson Valley Lodge, who yep. have kindly helped us deck out a local studio here for Michael Laws and Leanne Malcolm. We're just putting in the gear in Wellington as we speak. Our uh, mics and our computers are going in there. And Auckland is about a month away. We've got a, a, a studio at an undisclosed location in Auckland. Oh, so it's so getting it's there. Go. It's all go. It's a few months behind schedule, but that was covid and I could have pulled my hair out, but what can you do when global <laughs> supply chains, builders fall over, you can't buy jib board, yeah. and we just kept going until we got there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. And so, so setting up the platform came from a sort of profound dissatisfaction with the way that the media is currently going. What was the? What was I the main had sort thought of about for it for it? a couple of years. Yeah. Uh,
1: and it had struck me: the older and more experienced I got, I ended up working for people who had less experience than I did. And I think you have this thing in your profession. So-and-so's given me a job, that's a real vote of confidence in me, I hope I can please them. And I suppose at the age of around 56, 57, I'd moved through that. I was the old guy in the room. And I couldn't find, you know, uh, if you get deplatformed, build your own platform. Yeah, fair enough. But as I got into that, I realised there are a whole lot of other writers and thinkers and organisations in New Zealand that are also denied a platform on mainstream media because of the strange identitarian nature of our media at present. And outfits like the New Zealand Initiative, which make huge contribution but do not get the bandwidth mm. of those who are anointed by the current political administration or by the collective sort of liberal media. That person's an acceptable expert, Susie Wiles, people like that. They're they're lionized and made heroes and it's actually a pretty undiverse Mm. media so as I build, I thought I'm building this platform for me and then it suddenly to be honest if you analyse it I've only written two pieces on the platform since it's been up and running is that right because I've sat there and I've realised gosh there are people who know more about subjects than me and write actually better than me so we've been taking their stuff Uh, Carl Dufresne's giving us everything he's writing and Carl's a great writer and Carl rang me um, and he said Sure, and I'm getting so much more feedback to what I'm writing because clearly you're able to push the message out to more people. So yeah. that's what it's about. It's aggregating independent and free thought. Well, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of
0: smart people, uh, skilled people out there, and they need a, need a home to go to, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, so and they haven't that. got one at the moment. Yeah, without being judged or, you know, people passing judgment on them. So I've actually been really heartened. I'm what 14 months on from leaving Magic, mm. um, and And all through COVID, we're kind of getting there. Wow. You know, we are. All right. Cool. All right. Uh, Sean Plunkett, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Later on at the New Zealand Initiative Members Retreat, uh, I also spoke to Dr Catherine Strong, who is an academic at Massey University, to get her perspective on the current media environment and how it is set to change. I'm joined today by Dr Catherine Strong from Massey University.
2: Hello I, Ben, how are you doing?
0: Very good, thank you. Uh, it's a lovely day down here in very picturesque Queenstown. Uh, you're here with us for the New Zealand Initiative Members Retreat. How have you found it?
2: Oh, stimulating for one thing, but also beautiful. The weather's just turned out. We're at this fabulous lodge and it just shows the best of what's down here in the Queenstown area. The conference itself uh, is just full of really he- heavyweight brains.
0: Right, okay, Yep. Yeah. Yes. So I, it's, I guess it's a good way to describe it.
2: Well, <laughs> yeah, they're they're knowledgeable. Um, they're opinionated, so there's not a lot of a whole, whole lot of grey talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But they come from um, you know, a point of actually knowing what they're talking about and having good context and, and background.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Your background is in journalism, um, you're, you're an academic, as I said, with Massey University, um, and you spoke on one of our panel sessions before. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the current state of New Zealand media?
2: Uh, well, I could probably talk for about two or three hours on that, actually. Okay. so well, and we'll, I think we'll keep it short. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, the state of the media is basically is it's in upheaval. There's no two ways about it, is that it is in a major change. The last one that was this major was 100 years ago. 100 years ago is when radio news started. Yeah. And people no longer had to read newspapers. They didn't have to be literate. They didn't have to buy in order to know what was going on. It's a lot more
0: passive, isn't it? Because you can listen to it in the background.
2: You can pass, which means you miss some of the things because you're busy doing other things. But also, that was when they could actually hear who was making the news and hear hmm. the journalist and they could judge themselves like, Oh, that, I don't know if I believe them. Yeah. They could have that judgment. Um, and, and so that was a hundred years ago and technology changed everything then with broadcasting and then, you know, licenses and things. And then fast forward hundred years or less and we got, internet and social media, and that has just messed up everything. When yeah. I say messed up, <laughs> it has created a turmoil in the in the news media. I'm talking about news media and sure. not, not entertainment.
0: Yeah. Okay, because, I mean, obviously the internet has made information far more widely accessible for people, um, but at the same time it's amplified everyone's voice that wants to have one.
2: What it has is it's diluted those who actually have qualifications and background in gathering news. Gathering news that's accurate, fair, balanced. Mm. Uh, Journalists go to all different sides. They try to. They try to get people to give the other sides. Whereas now with the social media, you have got people who will have tens of thousands of followers, and all they have is a camera phone and a blog site Mm. and they're giving their interpretation of the news and sometimes it is absolutely wrong. I don't mean interpretation. They're making it up.
0: Right, right. And there's also been an increase in sort of inflammatory or provocative language, I think, as well, hasn't there? Do you think those go hand in hand?
2: There's been an increase in abuse Right. to journalists and, well, not just journalists, but uh, abuse on the social media is that people think they can just say the most vile things to anybody at any time. They sort of, I don't know, they think because they're not looking at the person that they could say things Th- that they wouldn't that normally.
0: There's some sort of level of anonymity or something so like that, right?
2: Journalists are getting it in the head constantly. Yeah. Journalists are attacked constantly, getting emails or on social media, <sighs> calling them names, it's saying... Terrible vile things. I, yeah. I won't say it on this Yeah, on this we, can, we listeners can imagine, though, I'm sure. Yeah, and so this makes it quite hard to do your job. It's sort of like, hey, there are other jobs that pay better. Mm. <laughs> They're out
0: there doing their best, right?
2: Yeah, and most journalists um, are doing it for the social good anyway, yeah. is that they realise that democracy depends on open government mm. and open media. Um, they know that they want to give the spotlight on injustices. They also want to give the voice to those who don't normally have a voice. And too often we see around the world is that it's the big corporations, the big politicians who have money mm. and have a whole fleet of public relations people who can get their message out all the time.
0: Or, and or government departments as well, right?
2: Absolutely. And they can be heard, their side, and not necessarily the, the, the people, the powerless people. Affected by it,
0: yeah, and, yeah,
2: and that's what journalists want to do. They want to they want to look at all of that side and um, explore. Like, if there's a, a decision to be going to be made, or say a policy, how does it affect all these others who maybe weren't in there to make the policy?
0: Right, that's a good point. Uh, one of the one of the interesting things I've been thinking about is um, this. Uh, this fracturing of media, the rise of these new alternative media organisations. So I mean back in the day people would have gone home, they would have watched the 6 o'clock news, perhaps watched it as a family, Um, they would have gone to work or school the next day and talked about things they'd seen. Uh, They all had that same sort of shared experience. Uh, Now a lot of people don't just end the day watching the news, they'll visit their own website of choice uh, maybe they'll have a look at uh, things happening in the international media, or go on blogs, anything like that. You don't have that same shared experience or um, perception of what's what's objective, perhaps. You're
2: absolutely right about the shared experience. I'm not so sure that's a bad thing, right. um, but yes, uh, people. In fact, there's so many people that actually don't even have broadcast, so they're not tuning into television at all. They don't have broadcast, yeah, and so it's not like. TV news, 6 o'clock news, Mm. has that huge influence. Uh, Influence on other journalists, influence on policymakers, but not necessarily everybody. But doesn't that make it more interesting around the water cooler? Is that each person comes and says, whoa, did you see this? No, I didn't see that. Did you hear that? And they said, yes, but you know that's wrong. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah,
0: well, I, I, I think it certainly leads to Greater debates, shall we say.
2: Yeah, and sometimes they're, they're good, and sometimes they pick apart the actual news um, that they've heard f- or seen from different places, mm. and, yeah, they challenge it. And that's that's got to be a good thing, instead yeah. of just everybody hearing what's on the 6 o'clock news and thinking, yes, yes, yes. Um, because there has to be a decision. There are hundreds, every hour, hundreds of stories are, that are news stories, mm. and every media has to decide which of the handful they're going to put on their site.
0: I think that's an important point, though, isn't it? Because it's not, um, maybe you wouldn't go so far as to say the news is kind of curated, but it's certainly picked by, by news outlets. There's, there's, so, there's a vast multitude of things um, that could be reported on, some of them from are quite mundane, others are explosive. And it's all about uh, news organisations finding that balance of what to choose
2: to report, you ha- right? You have you have to make a decision on what is news, yeah. and it has to be what's news for your audience. Mm. So what might relate to New Zealanders would be different than Australia. Yeah. What would relate to young mothers? Mm. You know, maybe maybe it's a government decision how it might relate to young mothers would might be completely different than to pensioners. So you have to bring that into account. Now, in the old days, it was, uses what your editor said. So one person would say, nah, I don't like that. No, we <laughs> like this. Put this on, you yeah. know. And But usually that w- came from years of knowing sort of what people want and actually what they felt people need, what is going to affect them in the long term. Right Now it's different, is that people can pick and choose. They mm. can go to a new site that actually um, curates it for their demographic.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, you, is it safe to say that in the past, perhaps there was a lot more sort of um, editorial paternalism? Okay, these are the things that people ought to know. Um, whereas now it's more of a, a bottom up. Like these are the like these might be the things of interest to you.
2: I love your terminology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank yes. You. Yes. It it, it it was a paternalism, and it was what is worthy. Mm. And sometimes they got it wrong. Like the entire news would just be what was coming coming out of parliament or, yeah. or in other countries, out of the White House or whatever, um, whereas now it's um, a whole, a, a much wider. And we also know that things that are news and things that actually affect you are not necessarily government-run.
0: Yeah, that's quite right. Okay, so you mentioned that the media is in a bit of a state of transition at the moment, um, and you've also, you've also hinted that um, media options for people are likely to increase and become more relevant to... to people's lives and their circumstances. Is that the end goal? What, how do you see this kind of progressing? What's what's on the horizon?
2: The horizon, I think, is just simply you're not going to have some really powerful single media that you're going to have that wide of an audience. It mm. is going to be fragmented. Okay. Um, I don't think that's bad. Yeah. And I think you're still going to have journalists and some very, very worthy editors so that the same... Stories, the same news will be reported, but it may be looking at different aspects on it. You right. know how it's going to relate to different people. But another thing is that um, because the media knows that trust is going down, this is worldwide mm. that people don't trust the media. They they're confused over social media and what they see on the blog sites and what's real and what's not. They um, and and the media is aware of that, and they're starting to to pull back a little bit um, in that when people refuse to be interviewed... They're actually writing this in the story. They're saying, there's no comment here from such and such an organization or from such and such a government department because they refused, because they wouldn't. The the receptionist refused to put it through. I've seen that. Mm. Um, And this is going to be more of a trend where they actually do a lot more on how they did the story. First of all, that gives credibility on what they did in order to get this information. But it also calls up those who are trying to block it and those who are trying to be unaccountable for, say, public money or public decisions.
0: Right, OK. So I, I guess it, um, uh in- inclusions of things in stories, saying like, oh, the government department was approached for, for comment but none was received by the by the time of filing the story, it does, in a way, just um, uh, tick off that, that avenue. Um, so, I mean, r- readers of the story will be able to go, OK, well, they, they did look into this aspect and they received no response.
2: Yeah, so the, the really um, sort of more mature media consumers Mm. can look at stories and they go, oh, why didn't they go to that one? Oh, there's holes in that story. They didn't even ask them. This explains that. Now, there's been some good research on this just recently, and we call them process boxes, and they're um, coming up a lot more where journalist does a story, and then they do a podcast or a, or a little side story that explains how they did the story, mm. what they had to do, um, sort of some of the gratification of it, but also the challenges, who wouldn't talk, who, who, who tried to put them off the story. What the research in the States did is that readers who read the story, the news, with the process box, trust it more than if they just read the story straight. Right.
0: It's because there's a greater level of transparency, though, isn't it?
2: It's transparency. It's actually putting the readers into the shoes of the journalist. Yeah.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Well, that, I think that's a really quite a, quite a reassuring story, then, isn't it? If people if people can recognise that in news stories, um, there's a greater level of transparency, and you're suggesting that um, there's also going to be a, a, a multitude of new media um, that better cater to people and their circumstances and their uh, their lives.
2: Yep. Yeah. So that's that's what we see is unfolding. Um, what my hope is is that the news um, consumers are picky. Yeah. You know, is that they make sure that they shop around and actually subscribe to a news a news site or a news you know, feed that actually is robust. Mm.
0: Or even a even a um, even a good podcast like this one.
2: Absolutely, <laughs> just like this one.
0: Dr. Catherine Strong, <laughs> uh, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events. Sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.